through 26. This reading comes from the New Revised Standard Version, and you can find this reading on page 838 in the Pew Bible. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. Well, if only Jesus had said verses 20 to 22 and then stopped talking. Life would be so much easier. These first three verses that he said are just swell. Blessed are you who are poor. Yeah, we like to hear that. I mean, who couldn't use a few extra bucks in their checking account? Blessed are you who are hungry. Oh, yeah. Some of us can't wait to beat the Presbyterians to Sunday brunch this morning. (laughs) Blessed are you who weep or are hated or persecuted. Yeah, preach on, Jesus. We want to hear that. That's That's stuff we like to hear. These first three verses are great. But then he keeps on talking. He doesn't stop talking. After these first three verses, he goes with three more verses. These aren't blessings. These are words of judgment. These are words of woe. He says, woe be unto you who are rich. Woe be unto you who are full. Woe be unto you who are laughing. Woe be unto you who are popular. It's the same Jesus, of course, who says all six of these verses but we tend to only like the first three. Those are the verses we like to be about us, words to comfort us in our affliction. But then something happens in the way we interpret the last three verses. We tend to think that those verses are about other people. At least that's what we like to do. So here's the question for us today. What if? What if all six verses are intended for you and for me. Have you ever heard of self-serving bias? Uh, Back in the 1960s and 70s, a psychologist named Fritz Heider first proposed 
the idea of self-serving bias. Here's the basic idea. He said that when things are going well in your life, we tend to attribute the cause of those good things as internal, as stuff that we have done to bring about the blessings in us. In other words, uh, if you get an A on a test, it has to be because you studied hard. Or if, if I get a promotion in my job, well, it has to be because I earned it. Or if you, you hit all of your sales targets for like five months in a row, it must be because you hustled, because you did your job well. But when things go bad, that's when self-serving bias kicks in. When, when we go from blessing to woe, then we look for the cause not to be inside us, not to be internal, but to be external to us. It must be the fault of someone else or something else. Let's say if you flunk a test, well, it had to be because the classroom was too hot or because the questions weren't worded clearly because you had a horrible teacher. Or you get passed up for a promotion, must be because the other guy was a suck-up, <laughs> or because the boss played favorites, or because of office politics. Or if you missed your sales targets for five months in a row, had to be because of the bad economy, or because the boss was being unfair. You see how this works. Self-serving bias is something that all of us have at our disposal, and the truth is it's not inherently a bad thing. We use self-serving bias in order to preserve our sense of worth, our sense of self-dignity. I mean, none of us want to go through life every single day feeling like everything bad that's happening is our fault. That would deflate our ego. We would never want to live life like that, and so self-serving bias can be a healthy thing. But when taken to an extreme, when you don't acknowledge the possibility that it exists in your life, when you don't name it as a factor, then you miss out on tons of opportunities for you to improve, for you to name your shadow, for you to get better, for you to mature. And that's why Jesus didn't stop talking after three verses. And that's why those last three verses are just as relevant to you and me as the first three. Because Jesus recognized self-serving bias in all of us, and he had something else to tell those disciples, and he has the same thing to say to us. And in fact, self-serving bias not only works in our own individual lives, what if self-serving bias exists in our society, in our community, even in our world? in the way we treat people who are different from us. Think about it. Think about the number of times that you've heard sentiments like, well, you know, if I, if I have a job and if I have a family, it's because I've worked hard and I've earned it, which by and large may very well be true. But then the converse is said. If you see someone who is poor or homeless or low income, it must be because they're lazy. It must be because they don't work hard enough or they just don't get it. That's 
that is self-serving bias on a social scale. And, and frankly, that's what Pharaoh said in Exodus. Just a sort of an aside, to go back to the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, we see the first ever instance of self-serving bias in the entire Bible. In Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh had enslaved the Israelites and forced them to make bricks out of straw, which is a hard enough job to make that many bricks to make all of these gigantic monuments. But Pharaoh went one step further and changed the labor policy to make it even more unfair. He said, not only do you have to make bricks out of straw, we are no longer going to deliver the straw to you. You have to go out and gather the straw for yourself, and you still have to make the same number of bricks every single day as you did before, which was impossible. The Israelites couldn't do it, so they failed to meet their quota. And so Pharaoh says, these words of self-serving bias in chapter 517, he says to the Israelites, you all are lazy, lazy. And the Bible is very clear. He doesn't just say they're lazy. He says they are lazy, lazy. Because that's what pharaohs say. That's what earthly powers do. That's the way they perceive other people. And the truth of the matter is, that's the way all of us operate. If we go unchecked, our temptation is to view the first three verses as about us and the last three verses of Jesus as blaming and putting the fault on everyone else. I wonder how many of us have ever thought about that kind of bias within ourselves, to despise the rich for being rich without recognizing that we ourselves are rich in many ways, each one of us, yet are unwilling to help the poor, to despise the privileged without recognizing the privilege that you and I have, sometimes at the expense of other people, to despise the popular without recognizing the ways that we pump up our own reputation while thumbing the nose at everyone else. All of us are guilty of this, and that's why Jesus didn't stop talking after three verses. And he would pose the question to us this morning, what if both the blessings and the woes, what if the entirety of Luke 5, 20 to 26 is a message for each one of us today? What if Jesus is offering for us a safeguard against each of our own self serving biases that we may not even know we have, not just as individuals, but as a country. I think that's why it's so important that we take time out every third Monday of every year as a nation to honor the man who raised this point to our national self-conscience more than perhaps any other person in American history. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He called our country to a higher awareness of both our strengths and our shadows, to look past the color of our skin, to look past our self-serving biases, to look instead at the content of our character and the common good with which we all must aspire.
Last spring, my older daughter Grace and I visited Washington, D.C., and we stopped at the MLK Memorial. Some of you have seen that memorial. You can attest to how awe-inspiring and majestic and how reverent that space is. It's truly a beautiful monument. You also may have taken some time to read the 14 inscriptions that are engraved on the low granite wall on the perimeter of the monument, 14 amazing statements by Dr. King lifted out of some of his most iconic speeches. I don't know what plans you have made for tomorrow for the MLK holiday, but perhaps you would carve out some time tomorrow to go online and to read for yourself once again each of those 14 inscriptions and to be inspired by them once again. I spent some time this past week reading about the origins of the MLK Memorial and what brought about the design of Dr. King for that monument, and I came across a remarkable story of a man named Bob Fitch. Bob Fitch was the most important photographer in the civil rights movement. And in fact, he became the personal photographer for Dr. King himself throughout his public ministry. Bob Fitch started out, of all things, as a Protestant minister, and in his course of ministry became so spurred and so inspired by the work of equality and justice during the civil rights movement that he decided to take his camera and shine a spotlight on the struggles of those who were fighting for justice and equality. And eventually, he became Martin Luther King's personal photographer. And then there was one day when Dr. King called Bob Fitch and invited him over to Atlanta to his office to take a very special set of photographs. Dr. King had just finished a manuscript for a book called Where Do We Go From Here?, would actually become the very last book that Dr. King would ever write. And he needed some photographs to use as part of the cover of that book. So he called his friend, Bob Fitch, to take some photos. And among those photos is this iconic photograph. It shows Dr. King standing at his desk in his Atlanta office, his arms crossed with a pen in hand, and there on the wall overlooking his desk and his work was a portrait of Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi, the great iconic spiritual figure of our time who spoke of nonviolence and peaceful resistance and a commitment to equality and justice. That photo watched over Dr. King as he sat at his desk just as his philosophy and guiding principles guided all of Dr. King's work. And there was Bob Fitch snapping that photo. And little did Bob Fitch know that four decades later, When the designers of the MLK Memorial were looking for a way to render MLK in that monument, they would use that pose as part of the inspiration. There in the MLK Memorial stands a towering figure of MLK in granite, arms folded, scroll in hand, with his eyes gazing into the horizon, calling our country once again to a more noble character to help us see the self-serving biases within all of us. It's a remarkable story, but it gets even better. After Dr. King died, 
His widow, Coretta Scott King, asked their longtime photographer friend Bob Bob Fitch to join them privately for Dr. King's funeral. And in fact, Bob Fitch was the only photographer allowed into Dr. King's memorial. A few days after the funeral service, Bob Fitch told the story of a dream he had had later that night, a dream in which Dr. King had appeared to him, ironic, of course, that this iconic figure of history who spoke of having a dream would appear to his lifelong friend in the form of a dream in which he would say to Bob Fitch only these three words, continue the work continue the work. Friends, that's the message of Dr. King, and it's the message of Jesus in all six verses of Luke 5, 20 to 26. Continue the work. And that's the challenge for you this morning, to look inside yourself, to look inside your heart and your soul And look at the ways that you view other people and the causes for bad things that are happening. Ask yourself the question, how do you view the rich? Do you view the rich with envy and scorn? Ask yourself the question, how do you view the poor? As lazy? With pity? How do you view the homeless? Those that you see on the streets? those that you see walking our campus, those that you see sitting next to you in our worship spaces on Sunday mornings? Do you see them with self-serving bias or do you see them as fellow sojourners on this human journey, as brothers and sisters in the human family, as people who are made just as much in the image of God as you are? We need to look within ourselves and identify our biases and continue the work. How do you view the ethnic minorities? How do you view the gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgendered person? How do you view the undocumented immigrant? How do you view people who are a different age as you? How do you view the upstart millennial or the retiree? How do you view the person who's just a little bit different from you? With self-serving biases? Or do you see yourself as both the recipient of God's blessing, the first three verses, as well as responsible for the blessing of others? the last three verses. That is the work that Dr. King calls us to continue. And we need it now. We really need it now because our world, our country is broken, especially at a time when we are caught up in the insanity of another government shutdown that is rooted in a heated debate over the border wall that for some people feels like it's rooted in fear and insecurity as a nation, especially now when federal families are, are struggling financially because of the ineptitude of our government, both Democrats and Republicans, especially now when words of white supremacy and white nationalism are still making the news. 51 years 
later, after MLK's death, we need to continue the work. You know, both the first half and the second half of Jesus' words are true. You are blessed. You are blessed. You who are poor and are hungry and are weeping, you have been blessed by God. But you are also called to be part of the blessing because you are in many ways rich. In many ways, you are full and you are influential. All of us are. And we are all called to be used by God to bless others, especially those who are different from us. All of us are called to continue the work. Let us pray together. God, we thank you for the stirring words of Jesus embodied and proclaimed by Dr. Martin Luther King. We thank you for the many blessings you have given to us and your call to be a blessing to others, to struggle against our own biases and prejudices, and to see our work as a witness to the world of your all-encompassing love. These feel like broken times to so many people. Help us to work for justice, for compassion, for mercy, for equality, just in the way you gave your life for us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and let all God's people say, amen. And so in response to God's words of both comfort and challenge, we invite you to offer your very best your financial gifts through the work of this church, your prayer concerns and your joys, and your pledge cards as we continue our work on the 2019 budget. We are grateful for all of your generosity as we invite the ushers to come forward at this time.